0: Hi, this is Bob Knackle, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast.
1: And welcome to another episode of The Real Talk Podcast, episode 81. I am pleased, it's an honor and a pleasure to have New York City real estate legend Bob Knackle on the podcast. Bob is a true legend in our world of real estate in New York City. The word goat is oftentimes abused and used, used and abused by our colleagues, our industry insiders, our CEOs, other brokers, and even sports casters, right? The goat, who's the goat of basketball? Who's the goat of baseball? So I do wanna say that Bob is the true goat of real estate, specifically New York City real estate. Without really my young age or even Danielle's age, uh, Bob's been in the business as long as I've been alive, 10 years more than, than uh, Danielle's been alive, and almost 20 years longer than Ray has been alive, Ray over now, here. Now, Tuck,
0: you're making me feel really old. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> without, I, I thought, I, I did say I, it, thought I did, it was
1: supposed <laughs> to be friendly. I did say it without really revealing <laughs> my young age. <laughs> uh, Bob is striving to sell 3,000 hits, 3,000 properties in New York City. Uh, that, those are Hall of Fame figures, as you can compare. In baseball, 3,000 hits would be in line with the, with the likes of Albert Pujols, A-Rod, Derek Jeter, Ichiro Suzuki, and Kyle Ripken Jr. Back in the day, it all started when Bob was enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania, go Quakers. His aspirations were set to become the next Gordon Gecko of Wall Street and to work in banking and private equity. Bob ended up interning that summer at the only bank that would hire him. However, the, the bank that he was hired at was called Caldwell Banker, an American real estate franchise founded by Arthur Banker and Colbert Caldwell, headquartered near New York City in Madison, New Jersey. Little fun fact, for the listeners who are residential brokers, Coldwell Banker was owned by Sears at one point, had a commercial division called CV Commercial, then later spun off into CB Richard Ellis, which they acquired. Richard Ellis is an appraiser and upholder based in London in the 1700s, which eventually expanded into San Francisco in 1906. Eventually, Bob and his partner Paul started Massey Nackle, On November 15th, 1998, sold it to Cushman and Wakefield on December 31st, 2014 for a reported $100 million. For those 26 years, Bob led the city in multifamily and commercial sales and closed over $23 billion in gross volume. Fast forward to today, Bob has been responsible for selling 2,222 buildings, perhaps more today, considered the highest total ever to be a single broker in New York. He is the head of New York Investment Sales and private capital group at Jones Lang LaSalle. His roster of previous representations on the public front include Gary Barnett of XL Development, A.B. Rosen of RFR, RFR Realty, Sam Chang of McSam Hotel Group, and legendary developer and public figure, Harry Mackalow. His most notable closing was on behalf of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York in Brooklyn, which had a gross sales price of $680 million. On a personal note, Bob and I had previously met and exchanged through uh, my portfolio that I actually used to represent on behalf of uh, Elliot Spitzer real estate family. It was the 144 sponsor unit condominiums ex-governor Elliot Spitzer owned at the Corinthian Condominium, which traded for a total of $147 million. So I was on the sponsor leasing side of those units. That was actually a great sale. The deal consisted of nine studios, 91 one-bedrooms, 32 bedrooms, and 14 three-bedrooms. Uh, again, on a gross sales price of $147 million. So, you know, almost a million bucks a piece, which uh, in today's, if I had the capital in today's market, I mean, this is a no-brainer purchase for, uh, for, the, for the purchaser and also for the sponsor. I mean, the apartments needed a lot of work at the time. So a very good deal, I think, on both sides. Just to go over his lifetime stats, again, $20.4 billion in aggregate sales volume, 2,229 properties sold, so seven more units added to that. Over 70 million uh, square feet sold, total number of buildings, including the Corinthian units I've mentioned, uh, it's a small fraction, but he sold uh, 40,000 residential units. And on the development side, over $7 billion sold in aggregate deal volume, over 250 properties sold, development sites sold, and over 29. Million buildable square feet had traded under Robert's eyes. Bob is also the founder of KNN, the Knackle News Network. I used to watch that uh, with Hagerman, uh, John, right? Mm. A frequent columnist for the Commercial Observer. So he's got dozens and dozens of articles online if you look him up. He writes his own Twitter columns known as Knackle Nuggets and Lessons Learned During the 26 Years and 46 Days of Massey Knackle. Gives the readers a massive insight into the quirks of growing a business within our industry. Bob also appears on a variety of other podcasts that you can simply look up by typing in his name, Bob Knackle. I also did not know this, but the, you are the president and found, uh, for the Prescott Foundation of Children for Youth, an organization that he became involved with after selling the school's building in 1989. The NGO provides funding to help disadvantaged kids with their education, to which the organization has devoted almost three or over $3 million. Please follow Bob on your Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Bob Knackle, and I'll plug those links into our show notes. I want to say, you know, there's a saying in real estate, especially amongst the successful older generation of real estate brokers, that a real real estate guy does not need social media, does not need LinkedIn, does not need Instagram, does not care about the limelight. And just um, so no, what do you have to say to
0: that? Well, talk, first of all, I have to say that was an unbelievable introduction. I think the most detailed introduction I've ever had and all I can say is I wish my mom and dad were still alive to hear that. So, uh, thank you for that. Of course, um, of course. Uh, relative to uh, to social media, I think um, you know I was a uh, disbeliever for a long time. Um, thought it was a waste of time. <clears throat> Surprised how many people were active on social media, and for years. People were after me saying, hey, Bob, you got a lot of stories, you got a lot of things you could share, you should go on. And so finally I broke down and I said, you know, January 1st, I'm going to give it a go, try it for three months, see what happens. And I've just been totally blown away by the reach that social media has. You know, we've been fortunate to get a lot of traction, a lot of folks following, and I've met so many people that I never would have met if I hadn't been on social media. Right. So been uh, very, very impressed with the reach, the quality of people that are on, the quality of people I've met, the relationships that I've made, the business opportunities that have come my way. So I think it's just, you know, for for someone who's in the, the, the private capital space, which is generally anything other than larger institutional sales, sure. uh, it's very, very important not necessarily who you know, but who knows you, mm-hmm. and so market presence is a big part of uh, of what we try to do every day, uh, and social media is just another one of those components of a market presence campaign uh, to get get known and and have people. Uh, know who you are and what you can do and how you might be able to help them so it's been uh, it's been a great way to to uh, give another bit of ammunition to help our clients achieve their goals
1: we're going to do a deep dive into your social media initiatives because one of the reasons you're here is because of that and I want to talk more about that but before we do I want to get into uh, our usual section with all of our guests the short form quick answer section so please answer the following one or two words First word is Twitter. Uh, Amazing. Second word, Instagram and TikTok slash social media. Uh,
0: Don't use TikTok.
1: Not a dancer, okay. (laughs) Commercial observer.
0: Fantastic people.
1: The real deal. Uh, Amir is awesome. Amir Karangi who is also a friend and guest of the Real Talk podcast. I I agree. I call it the Bible of real estate. Rent regulation. Terrible. Interest rates. Normalized. 421A. Necessary. New York Rangers. The best. They're going to win the cup this year. Are you going to any of the games this week? Oh, yes. Okay, great. Yeah. Playoffs tonight. New York Mets. want to see them do well, but the Yankees are my team. Yankees, okay. New York state government and legislature. Misguided. Department of buildings. Uh, Needs improvement. Excel. Awesome.
0: The best land assembler. In the history of the city. Steven Ross and related? Built an unbelievable business, iconic. Miami Dolphins? Like to see them do better. think they will.
1: The New York Giants?
0: Uh, lifelong diehard
1: giant. Diehard, okay great. Um, I want to go back to the commercial observer and the real deal. You know publications tend to have the focus of when they start they want to focus on the history of the developer, the broker, the building, and then I think as of recent, and this is similar to a lot of other media's landscape, they need to produce more clicks. And what is more clicks? I mean, Bob knackle stories are great, but what can produce more clicks? Well, it could be, oh, this agency has these brokers that had committed a crime, or this developer is getting divorced with his wife. Those produce clicks. You know, what is your view right now in the environment of media and the climate that we're seeing as far as, you know, do they need to be more clickbaity or should they be... Writing more articles with substance.
0: No, I, I think that what I've seen over the years is that I think the media has shifted away from those click grabbing negative headlines. Okay. Uh, at least I don't I don't appear to be seeing them as much as we used to years and years ago. Maybe people are more aware of the environment that we live in today. Mm-hmm. I mean I uh, fortunately or unfortunately, there really is no privacy today. No. Um, and I feel bad for the kids that are growing up today because they're going to be uh, looking for a job in the future or running for political office, and somebody's going to say, When you were four, you posted this online. And uh, it's, uh, I think that that is a component of society that is. Potentially a negative, but I think that the world is so transparent today that maybe people are behaving a little better, sure. and so there's not as many negative stories as there were back in the, the '90s and the and the knots.
1: With regards to your the short answer of. Rent regulation, and he said, terrible. We can talk for hours about this, and it's an ongoing discussion. Let's just say the Real Deal posts an article about rent regulation. The comments are endless. I mean, everyone has something to say about it. Maybe in one to two minutes, can you explain to me what can the state do to alleviate the issues with rent control, or what can the people do to proactively vote or make their voice heard on this issue?
0: Yeah, I think it's a very, very simple issue, Todd. I think that price controls, tend to exacerbate the problems that exist in the market. Uh, They tend to constrain supply. There have been two very detailed studies done, one by the Wharton School, uh, one by MIT, that both demonstrate that in the absence of rent, regulation, average rents would actually be lower for people. I talk to a lot of politicians all the time, and I tell them that the the way to solve all of New York's housing problems are simply on the supply side. Uh, Look no further than the pandemic when vacancy increased so much. Rents dropped by as much as 30%. So everything that the legislature has either implemented or ignored over the past five years has done nothing but exerted upward pressure on rents. I think the solution is simply the old adage is that, well, there are more tenant voters than landlord voters, so it's a hopeless cause. I completely disagree with that. That's misguided. The fact is there are more free market tenants in New York than regulated tenants. The, the free market tenants have to be made aware that their rent's so high for two reasons. One, because they're, they're supplementing the rent for the rent-regulated folks. And two, our politicians are not adding to the supply or creating incentives to add to the supply, which is exerting upward pressure on their rent. So if you think you're paying too much in rent and you're a free market tenant, just look at your local politician. They don't want new supply. There are several things that could be done to easily add new supply to the market, but it's because of supply constraint, which rent regulation adds to, that there's, rents are so high in New York City.
1: Don't you think these politicians are smart enough, or at least they understand that statistically speaking, there are more free market renters than rent controlled renters. Wouldn't you think they would be appealing to more of the rent non-rent controlled renters and actually doing things proactively to reduce the number of RC units? No, I
0: don't, because I, I think that rent regulated tenants tend to be single issue voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that rent controlled tenant may, or rent stabilized tenant may disagree with the politician on every other front. But if they're lined up on that one issue, they'll vote with that politician. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think, I think the politicians feel, and it's the case, that free market tenants are not as vocal or as unified as they should be. And I think that that has to change. And that is the one thing that could make things change. From the politician's perspective, one of the unfortunate things about politics is that the minute someone gets elected, Their main objective is to get re-elected. Right. Uh, And the fact is, I've heard two folks on the city council say that they voted against a specific project in their district because they were afraid too many new people would move into the district that didn't know them and might not vote for them. And I've asked politicians, you know, how do you overcome that dynamic? And they just kind of laugh and shake their head and say, well, Bob, that's politics. That is really terrible.
1: I mean, Chuck Schumer has been the longest standing senator since 1999 for New York State. So, I mean, this is a career politician perhaps is not the best thing for the general people. You have to look after your people, right? You're a constituent for the people. So, I agree in that in that respect that there should be more guided regulations on the number of terms that a senator or a legislator, someone that works with a legislator can serve in order to dynamics change. We have They have to be serving the people. So, yeah. No, I agree with that notion as well. I would like to dive into the long-form questions just because you are a wealth of of knowledge you are the walking bible of real estate so just going back to what we talked about earlier on the twitter issue right many bright minds are on the twitter landscape i noticed your posts were starting to gain tremendous traction and this is when i noticed your post as well january 3rd of 2023 going back to 2017 you were posting commercial your articles from commercial observer you write them and then they would get posted on your twitter account The engagement was nothing maybe you had one like the you weren't really getting any traction on that but you have been a a consistent poster since 2017. then your post on january 1 of 2023 had as little as three likes and under 500 impressions since elon took over impressions became a free tool for for twitter people to uh, observe so uh, what happened was on january 3rd you posted a post about your love for baseball in real estate, which garnered almost 11,000 impressions. This was almost like a baseball card of stats, and it had a cold call, you know, 100 a week, you know, building sold, uh, and, and all those interesting real estate stats on, on a baseball card format. So you know that gained so much in traction. What do you think changed there, in your opinion? And that was kind of like your start to Twitter fandom.
0: Yeah, well, I, I would say that I, I have a Twitter account from 2017. I think I was on LinkedIn from 2011. Okay. But the fact is, I really uh, didn't pay any attention to social media until January 1st of this year. If uh, resolution. If, if articles were posted, they were posted, but I never went on the sites, never reviewed anything. It was done in a very, very passive way. And I made an active decision to become proactive relative to social media. I write all my own content, just like. A lot of folks ask me if I write my, my thoughts question. article for the, the Commercial Observer. I've always written every single word of that. Folks have offered to write for me. I've always said no, because I remember in year one of the Commercial Observer, and that all started, Jared Kushner had been getting uh, monthly letters from me that I sent to all my clients. It was a message from Bob. We kind of went over what was happening in the market. And Jared came to me one day and said, Bob, you know, I'm buying the Observer newspaper. I'm gonna create a real estate paper. I love the stuff you write, would you mind writing a column for the paper? I immediately accepted and they did a focus group after a few months, folks said, you know, we, we like Mackel's article the best, but we know he doesn't write it. Uh, I had written every single word of my column and because of that feedback, when people have come and said, hey, Bob, you want me to help you write the articles, whatever, I've always rejected that because I need to stay true to writing every word myself. So every word of my observer columns I've written and now for my social media stuff, I write every word of the content also i spend uh, some time on sunday writing all the content for the week i have a team of folks that do the posting for me you know it become a fun thing i think like all things we have to find the right balance of how much time you're spending in different areas so i'm about three and a half months in now and uh trying to find that that right balance but i've thoroughly enjoyed it and as i said i've met several folks that have been great to have relationships with and gotten some really uh, interesting business opportunities out of it so far.
1: Yeah, I cannot believe the growth. I was one of your, I thought I was one of your first likes on the post and I thought I was one of the, the earlier followers but then when I actually did my research, you had an active account in 2017, your first article on the Commercial Observer was how the Midtown East, Midtown East zoning rights can be contested by a group of neighborhood association people and developers to put in a lot of time and money and effort and it could be squashed by the neighborhood association uh, in Midtown East. So, or specifically Sutton Place. And uh, I thought that was interesting. In 2017, not much has t- changed uh, politically in uh, in 2023 uh, with regards to that. But yes, the Twitter data that you have provided I think is the most interesting. A lot of people on Twitter perhaps are of the younger generation, right? Where they're millennials. So that maybe their max age or average age is probably in their early thirties or late twenties, the the daily user base that is. And the fact that you're on it and you you have more experience and credibility, I think that is a great place for Twitter because a lot, there are a lot of LinkedIn, uh, I would say influencers or Twitter influencers. They pretend to be an influencer on a specific subject matter and they write threads on Twitter. And I, I look at these people and I'm sure I want to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, But they're young. how to, you're 24 years old and they're talking about how to build your own real estate empire or how to start an Airbnb business and be extremely successful at it. And you know, they're they're in their twenties and I get it. They might be successful in their own way, but you have someone like Bob who has the track record. I think that really helps the Twitter environment in terms of establishing credibility on who's actually writing these threads. There's more weight to what you say than perhaps average Twitter users. So if you're not on Twitter, I I encourage you to read his threads because they do have a lot of weight behind them. Well,
0: talk one of the things that uh, most prevalent feedback that I get on my my LinkedIn posts and my Twitter posts of that, they're a little different than what most folks do. Most, most people who are brokers uh, are rightfully posting, hey, I just listed this, I just sold this. I try to give it a little different perspective using the decades of experience that I have. I talk about transactions and the way transactions are put together. That's my favorite part. uh, Some of the techniques that were used in negotiating those. Some of them are motivational posts. I like to do those on Mondays, Monday motivation. Monday motivation, Um, The Tuesday post is generally about a transaction and then a a testimonial from the client. Uh, Testimonial Tuesdays. Testimonial Tuesdays. Uh, Then Wednesday is a mixed bag what I'm doing. Maybe it'll be on on our podcast we'll post on on a wednesday uh and then thursday i like to do a throwback to some of the old stuff that had happened 20 30 40 years ago Throwback thursdays uh, and so that's been a lot of fun and the knackle
1: nuggets when do you sprinkle the knackle nuggets
0: knackle nuggets is on friday <laughs> i okay the knackle yeah. nuggets just you know that's rightfully or wrongfully over the years you uh you learn a lot and i think I've learned a tremendous amount in this business, mostly by making hundreds of mistakes, but that's how you you learn things, I think, by pushing yourself and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. So to the extent that I can share some of that that experience with uh, with folks, I'm happy to do it. And as I said, the, the feedback has been really nice and I'm glad that it's helping people in some way.
1: Do you feel yourself doom scrolling too much on Twitter now, now that you're on it?
0: Okay, now as a new new person to social media, you said doom doom-scroll? scrolling? I don't know what that is. Danielle, do you
1: wanna explain what doom scrolling is? just assume it's like continuing like getting sucked into That's right getting sucked into the content of social media so you're just scrolling and scrolling before you know it you just wasted an hour of your day yeah no I, i i
0: haven't done that uh there are some some folks that i follow that uh that i i like very much and i i try to pay attention to what they're saying but i i try not to spend too much time going through it at the end of the day my number one priority is to help my clients if somebody signs me up to represent them exclusively i owe them loyalty that i owe that. them my time uh, and if i uh, if i hired me to sell a building i wouldn't want me to be doom scrolling that's right there you go new word a new term i learned today. new term
1: new term yeah, right um doom scrolling is definitely a, a uh, a, a millennial and a Gen Z uh, issue, I think these days, especially with like, schooling and work and things of that nature. Let's go back to your Twitter. Response rates are great, by the way, uh, on your Twitter handles. do you, you have a couple other followers that you like on Twitter, is what you said. Who who are they? Do you want to give them a shout out?
0: Yeah, I, I prefer not to because okay. I know I'm going to leave somebody out. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, I, I have to I'll just mention one of my favorites is Strip Mall Guy.
1: Yeah, Real Estate uh, trend. Is, At Real Estate Trent, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you met know. Met him in person. I've met him several times. In fact, I'm having drinks with him tonight.
1: Okay. What's uh, his name? Or is I, that a secret?
0: That's a secret. He's a strip mall <laughs> guy. Uh, but, um, you know, he's been a very, very sharp guy, very insightful, and, um, you know, one of the relationships that I enjoy. But there are a lot of folks that I really enjoy following. I, I, again, I don't want to name, name names, names. So I'm going to leave sure. somebody out and then no i in hot
1: water. No problem. But,
0: uh, I see
1: a lot of engagement on your account, and I have started following people from your account as well. I've actually followed Real Estate Trent before you. He's since collaborating and retweeting and sharing your articles and things of that nature. Mm. So I, I like the collaboration there. Let's shift gears a little bit. I'm gonna pivot into just the commercial landscape. This is listened to mostly residential brokers. My clients, my personal network, in a lot of compass agents in new york city and throughout the u.s and we're, we're in we have about 370 offices throughout the u.s now so i we post internally so a lot of commercial not a lot of commercial people listen to this so I, I do want to get into the commercial world and that intricacies that are significantly different than what we deal with on a day-to-day basis on the residential front so my first question to you is what is the fascination of off-market deals or why is there a fascination commercial agents on off-market deals. Many agents in the commercial field pride themselves on no marketing, no social media, no co-broking and transacting on, there's no MLS in commercial real estate, but transacting on non-public platforms. So why is this and how does that benefit the seller or why does that benefit the buyer? Now, full disclosure, there was a large investor here at Compass that came and visited us many years and I asked, you know, what is your criteria on buying commercial real estate? What is your criteria on buying hotels, multifamily properties, land, retail space? What is it? And one thing that he did say is one thing that his response was, I avoid marketing materials from big companies like Massey and and CB Richard Ellis and SL Green or SL Green and the big big guys. He said, I only want to buy off market. And that always fascinated me. How does that benefit the seller in that case? So give give me your response to those items that I just mentioned uh, in in brief detail.
0: Okay, well, first of all, I don't believe there is such a thing as an off-market deal Um, unless you call a seller and the seller says, I'm not interested in selling. And then you go to the seller with an offer and then the seller decides, all right, I'll accept that. Uh, That's an off-market deal. Uh, But if the seller says, yeah, bring me a guy, that property's on the market, whether it's it's you choose as a broker to market it properly or or covertly, that's your choice. But I can tell you the, uh, the buyers in the market love to buy off market because they're generally paying less than the property's worth, and it is not in the seller's best interest to do that. There are some sellers that may not want the market to know that they're selling, which, again, doesn't make a lot of sense to me because as soon as the property sold the whole world will know that they sold sure. uh, but if you make a mistake and sell for much less than it's worth everybody will know you made a mistake so you know in all of my transactions and actually i'm up to 2252 now oh, okay. uh, but uh but who's counting <laughs> but in in each of those except two uh i was i'm the exclusive agent for the seller i've only done seller representation Uh, I believe in maximizing exposure, maximizing the number of bids you get, that ultimately maximizes the price. Uh, And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, I don't like conflicts of interest. And if you're always only representing one side of the transaction, you avoid conflicts of interest. Secondly, I don't want to have to ever remember what I say to anybody. So if I'm simply trying to get the highest price all the time, it's very easy to remember what uh, what what you need to say. And uh, I think it is absolutely in the seller's best interest to put a property openly on the market. Uh, So I don't agree with off-market deals unless you're a buyer, in which case you want to buy those because you'll pay less than the property's worth.
1: It's a fascinating world. There are commercial agents that you know very well, that I won't name names, that pride themselves on all off-market. And it's working for them. So it has to be benefiting somebody, and you're saying that it will never benefit the seller when it's off-market, unless Uh, special circumstances. First of all,
0: I I try never to use never or always. Mm -hmm. Um, There could be a circumstance, a weird circumstance that it works. And also, I'm not the greatest guru of uh, worldwide brokerage. There are different systems that work for different people. Uh, It all depends on your personality, what you like, the way you wanna do things. Uh, I know that from my perspective, representing sellers exclusively is a comfortable place for me. Uh, if New York State decided the exclusive listing was against go- <laughs> the law, I would go do something else. I would, okay. not, I would not stay in this business. I, but, um, but I think that different systems work for different people. Again, if I'm a buyer, I want to buy off-market, uh, I want to go to smaller brokerage shops. Uh, I want to go to residential brokers that might get in the way of a commercial deal now and then, uh, because I don't think those opportunities are marketed as widely. There's less competition for that. And by definition, in that circumstance, the probability is that you're going to get a better price than if you went out to the full market.
1: So you are more like the... MLS, let's just list it, give it to the world, make sure that everyone sees it, more eyeballs, highest price. And I agree with that notion. I just always thought that the commercial world is so fascinating that everyone's focused on the off-market opportunities. You know, look,
0: there could be reasons why you don't want to go broadly to the whole world with a listing. You may have a tenancy issue in the building that needs to remain uh, confidential, or uh, an environmental issue that you don't want the whole world to know about. So there, there are circumstances where we go to a smaller arena of potential people, um, but it, the properties that we sell are always quote unquote on the market.
1: Would you say that the majority of your deals are co-broked, or are they direct, d- direct deals in the commercial landscape?
0: Uh, it depends on the type of property, and there, mm. there, there are two main buckets of, of assets that we sell: uh, income-producing properties and development sites. You know those, those properties. Because the buyers are investors, those investors are very well known to us. So we probably uh, find the buyer on upwards of 95% of those transactions without another broker. Then there's the the bucket of user properties, which are typically vacant buildings. And the highest and best buyer for that property is going to be a buyer that's going to occupy the building for their own use. Those properties, you know, almost 50% of the time, the buyer is represented by another broker. And we, we so actively a... tell the sellers, you have to go out to the entire brokerage community proactively because it's it's much more difficult to identify those users and you need the cooperation of the outside brokers.
1: Go back for a second now. You said vacant buildings. Are those zoned as commercial or are they zoned as residential uh, both. And how big are they typically? Both.
0: You know, we, we sold the, the genesis of Massinacal was we were selling a lot of smaller buildings, and we were kids right out of college, so we could only yeah. get small buildings. So those buildings were residential and commercial. The commercial buildings would typically be sold to um, to a, a, a hedge fund, a private equity company, uh, a retailer, um, a corporation that mm. wanted to, to own it. Uh, private bank. And then the residential buildings, interestingly, we've sold a lot of townhouses, but very infrequently to a residential end user. We would mm. sell those to nonprofit organizations, foundations, foreign governments, community facility users, schools. And so there are different baskets of users that are interested in the different, differently zoned properties. But you have to uh, try to, um, to guesstimate which basket of buyers are going to be appropriate for that user building. And then go out proactively to the brokerage community to try to get as many people
1: interested as possible. I see. So there, co-broking does exist in the commercial world in that in that aspect of?
0: It, it's not nearly as prevalent as it is in the residential yeah. world, but mm-hmm. it really depends on the type of, of asset. Of
1: asset. Interesting. Yeah, I would say 95% of our deals are co-broked, uh, but uh, it just depends on the asset in the commercial field. So that's something that, uh, you know, something that you learn every day. Tech, I just wanna shift gears. You're on Twitter, you're a social media guy now. In your world of commercial brokerage, where do you see tech changing in the next five to 10 years? Let's just say, you know, ChatGPT is this new AI phenomenon that has been going on. For us, they'll write descriptions for us if we just ask them to, if we prompt them to write a description of a property to give them the basics. They can, they don't have any, they don't have an API for listing databases yet. Like if I say, what property does Bob Knackle own, it doesn't have any database. It cannot go into the API database of the Department of Finances to pull out a list. But these things are eventually going to probably come. How do you think the the current wave of technology coming in is going to change your commercial world of real estate?
0: Yeah, talk, I, I wish I knew. And I <laughs> invest in those companies today. Uh, but you know, I can tell you that technology has so profoundly changed the business. And I'll take you back to 1984 when I started in the business. I uh, did not have a fax machine, did mm. not have a computer on my desk, did not have a cell phone. You had a horse carriage outside? And, and something like that. <laughs> now, we carried around rolls of quarters yeah, in our pocket uh, because uh-huh. if we went to a building and waiting for somebody to see it and they didn't show up, we had to go down to the quarter corner and put a quarter in the in the phone uh, to, to call and see where that person was. Uh, so it's changed so profoundly. So you had right?
1: scheduled appointments. They would they, be an hour or two late. You wouldn't know where they went yeah, Look, you're it, standing we, in front of the building. It,
0: it, the, Technology has changed so much. I mean, I remember back in 84, we had a secretarial pool. And you wanted to send a letter to somebody, you would either write it or we thought we were very high tech with dictating a letter and you gave it to your secretary and she sat there, typed it out for you, gave it back, you made (laughs) corrections. I mean, that was the way it was done, that that there are no secretarial pools anymore. Everybody knows how to type. So I I think there will be profound changes to the way the brokerage business works. I think ultimately what will happen, I don't know whether it's five years from now, 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, but at some point, I think that there will be a marginalization of the brokerage business, at least in commercial, because there are two main functionalities that brokers serve. One is the finding of the buyer. And secondly, it is the negotiating the deal. Uh, I think to a great extent, the finding of the buyer can be marginalized through social media, through technology, through ways when when every seller knows if I put my property on xyz.com, 99.9 percent of the buyers are going to go there i think what will happen is that a seller of a property will come to me and say hey bob here are the top three bidders on my building finish up this deal for me and then because of the the differences in each building you know buildings are not widgets they they each have their unique characteristics uh the hundred thousand foot office building on the north side of the street is very different or can be very different from the hundred thousand foot office building on the south side of the street the, the human element is gonna be needed. But I think if a client came to me and said, here are the top three bidders, finish it up, that's a consulting role. And consulting fees are generally lower than brokerage fees are. So I think, I think the business will change over time based on technology, but who, who knows what technology is gonna be like 10 or 20 years from now? It could be vastly different.
1: Let's go back to those 80s and 90s. Did you think more commercial agents did more deals evenly? And then fast forward to today, in your world, less commercial agents are doing the most amount of deals or the majority of the deals. Do you think that that's a trend that is actually going to continue to go on in the next in, in the next five to ten years? Also, yeah, you no,
0: know, I think that's an interesting thing. A lot of people say because technology has sped up the uh, the transaction process that you you there must be so much more commerce going on. But the fact is uh, that over the last four decades. The total number of properties sold in New York City has declined. So there were more buildings sold in the 1980s in New York than in the last decade, and it's gone down each decade. But what has happened is that technology has allowed an individual broker to be so much more productive. So I think exactly what you said, there are less people doing more business today you're able to do so much more because of technology. So I think there were many, many more brokers back in the '80s, mm-hmm. and everyone was getting a little bit of market share. Okay. But today, you can get a much bigger market share because of technology.
1: Right, Bob, being the 99 percent of the majority of the market share. So, <laughs> with regards to the just your overall thoughts on you know your competitors, they worked under you. Now, now that they're, I say, Massy Naco has produced 15 other brokers that own their their own shop or run their own division. How does it feel for those that worked under you to be now your direct competitors?
0: No, look, I I think it's great. And I think uh, (laughs) if you ask Paul, he'd have the same feeling. Uh, We have almost a paternalistic uh, look at, at these folks. They're great people. We wish them well. And I always say, as long as they're not competing directly with me, I wish them all the <laughs> luck in the world.
1: You're a competitive uh, guy. If,
0: I, if I'm competing against them, of course I want to win. Yeah. But uh, it's great to see. And again, I'm not going to mention names because I'll, I'll leave somebody out and feel bad of course, about of course. that. But uh, you know, it's great to see. We had, um, you know, we had a very fundamentally sound training program. I think we taught the basics very well. 400 pages thick. Yeah, it, well. it was. Uh, we believe that. Um, the commercial brokerage business is very much a blocking and tackling business. Uh, there's no rocket science to it or secret sauce. It's just having the discipline to do the things that need to be done day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And, and I think the folks that have done so well, um, you know, took that to heart and focus on the fundamentals. And you know, they're doing a great job.
1: Blocking and tackling is interesting because that's not the sexiest part of the sport, is it? You want to catch the 60-yard bomb, or you want to hit the grand slam. You want a home run. I guess in baseball terms, it's not—it's small ball, right? So you want to get the bunts. You want to get the single base hits. You want to steal second with one man on base, no outs. Is that more real estate, yeah, or would yeah, you rather look, I'll, prefer I'll, no, the grand I, slams? I'll, uh,
0: I'll use the, the baseball analogy. I and mean, you, you were using some bad batting uh, terms. I'm yeah. going to use pitching terms. Okay, go because you're pitcher. a pitcher. Yeah. So I will tell you that uh, you know, it all came down to, um, you're on the mound, there's two outs, the base is loaded, oh. it's three and two on the, on the batter. Mm. What pitch are you gonna throw? How successful are you gonna be? That's the moment where the rubber meets the road. That's when you're about to sign the contract, when you're about to close the deal. But you put yourself in a position to excel in that moment by all the sprints that you ran in practice by all of the practice you did working on your curveball, by, by all the pickups that you did uh, to get your, your strength, uh, to all the sit-ups that you did, all of the things that you did every single day in practice, you hated doing those things. There's the thing called pickups, <laughs> which I used to hate doing, but I made sure I did five sets of 20 every single day. And it's just, Having that discipline to do the stuff, you don't really like doing it. like I kind of enjoy cold calling, which is kind of weird, but most people hate that. But it's one of the fundamental things that you have to do all the time to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do to put yourself in the best position to increase the probability of success. Are you going to succeed every time? No. All we try to do in this business is increase the probability that it's going to go the way you want it to go, And having the discipline to do those fundamental things over and over and over and over again put you in a position to increase the odds that you're going to succeed.
1: And you're throwing what? You're throwing a a curve, slider...
0: Depends on the batter. Depends
1: on the batter, okay. And, ha- and how
0: things are going that day. Some days the curve was a, a 12 to 6 curve ball that nobody could touch. Yeah. Some days it was hanging and it got blasted. So you had, <laughs> you had to look at each day, just like every presentation. That's right. you, you're reading the client trying to figure out what, what is going to resonate with them. Uh-huh. So you have to... Uh, All the work
1: that you put in, that's right. That's yep. right. Uh, the baseball terms I really like. You also had a good one about how you got into the University of Pennsylvania, probably from your from your baseball skills, right? you as a, as a pitcher. Um, but uh, and he had a like the the batter had a bunt and ended up being a bunt, and you trusted your catcher. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, no, I won't rehash <laughs> the story, but it was a very pivotal play in the the league championship game, uh, and fortunately, the uh, the head baseball coach at Penn who was the older brother of my high school baseball oh. coach happened to be in the stands that day. And it was, it was something that probably sealed the deal with me, uh, getting into to Penn. building the
1: foundation. All those setups you did equates to right now, all the cold calls that you've made and you have dialed, you've done a lot of deals. I want to discuss a lot, uh, pivot into your lessons learned, uh, section on your, On your twitter as well as the Massey or the sorry the knackle nuggets that you have Mm -hmm. on your twitter there's so many of them we can't talk about all of them just with the time but you know there's a couple deals that you've discussed that i thought was very interesting my my favorite story is how you've identified a couple townhouses on east 59th street and you realize that each individual townhouse is worth less if sold separately but will be worth significantly more when combined and why is that? It's a corner lot. Maybe there's air rights, correct? And you identified a buyer uh, by the name of uh, the legendary Harry McAlew who put down a $10 million deposit over the weekend. It was a holiday weekend, from what I heard. Uh, and uh, maybe you want to just give us a scoop into that story. And I think it's phenomenal. It's, it's yeah, just no, classic look, New York. I, I
0: admire Harry very much. He is a very unique uh guy, a New York real estate titan. But you know, in our business, you always look for an advantage. You look for a way to outmaneuver. And we we launched a development site at the southeast corner of 59th and 3rd on a Wednesday before a long holiday weekend. I think it was Rosh Hashanah weekend. And uh, Harry looked at the setup, called me right away. Bob, I love the site. Come to my office. Let's talk about it. One thing led to another within within a day, uh, he had an offer to us that was a hundred million for the site. and the the owners had previously, before they hired us, they had a contract out at ninety two million. So we knew that that was a good price. Often the the difficult thing about taking the first offer that comes along is you don't know whether it's good, bad, or ugly, but we had some historical perspective on that because the property had been on the market before we were retained. So, and Harry uh, submitted the bid and said, I have one contingency. Something, oh, here it is, a financing (laughs) contingency, a long due diligence period, something. He said, Bob, my one contingency is I want this contract signed by Monday night when everybody else is just getting back to the city. So I need the seller to commit to have their attorneys work over the weekend to get this contract done. And sure enough, the seller agreed to do it. Uh, We ended up signing the contract on Monday afternoon and everybody came back from the holiday and were opening up their emails and said, hey, I'm interested in that site. And sorry, it's under contract.
1: The number of attorneys involved and the sellers involved on that deal was not just one, correct?
0: Well, several, several on both sides, because we had two sellers. The seller was a, a two adjacent property owners. S. L. Green owned a couple of the properties, and Emma owned a couple of the properties. So we had attorneys representing each of them, uh, and Harry had his team of attorneys. So there were a lot of a uh, lot of attorneys involved. I mean, the
1: amount of uh, I will not say sheer hard work, but also luck needed to get that done on a holiday weekend, especially if it's Rosh Hashanah, is uh, is is impressive in itself. But the uh, actual purchase price. Did you know what Harry wanted to do with that site when he put down the down payment?
0: Oh, yes. It was clear the highest and best use of the site was for condo, condo.
1: development. Condo development. Yeah. Did you have to give any input on the success on that block as far as, okay, well, if you do condo here, you know your buildable will be this per square foot and your sale will ultimately be this per square foot? I mean, is that something that you also get involved in with yeah, Harry? Yeah,
0: well, we, we had given... Um, MS and SL Green, uh, our opinion of value, where we thought the property would sell. You know, typically what we do for development sites is we'll do a condo survey, uh, look at competing buildings in the area, see what units are selling for. We didn't even have a chance to do that. We were in the process of doing that report, <laughs> and it just unfolded so quickly. We didn't expect it to happen that fast, but, uh, you know, we typically do that that homework to try to figure out what the site is worth. Sure.
1: Okay. Yeah, the, the building set is interesting. We actually uh, represent clients on that block as well, some of the low rise properties that, they're, that they have. And um, you know, it's surprising to me, I've been on that block so many times for so many, for 15 years, I've been going around that block. And uh, to finally see a, a high rise building again, you know, on, on the exact opposite of uh, 201 East of 59th Street is an interesting phenomenon. Right now, they're about 30% sold, however. Did you think that's kind of par for the course? I'm not a condo broker. Okay, so it's not a question that I should be asking you. Uh, For the audience, what makes Harry McAuliffe a special developer, in your opinion?
0: Oh, I I think that Harry has a way of seeing things that other people don't see. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if you look at uh, his creativity with, I think it was 540 Madison, to push the retail space out to the the property line created... Uh, significant value to uh, to come up with the the idea for the Apple Cube was a, a unique perspective. I just think that you know one of the characteristics that I see in Harry and several other um, major developers is they look at at a site, they look at an opportunity, and they see something that other people don't. And I think Harry has that quality, and it's something I admire about mm, him.
1: Okay. Uh, another project that you've done that you've been public about uh, was. Uh, the rezoning uh, of this is another, I guess, the rezoning of the land in, in the Hudson Yard. So, this was 606 West 30th Street, uh, which is now a part of, a, a part of the collection of high rises. If you ever walked through Hudson Yards, you'll see a bunch of high rises. This one, I believe, is across the street from the current Whole Foods, correct? This is an interesting sale to me. I thought this was interesting because you were selling it on the notion that the FAR on this was only two, two, 2.0, uh, and the neighboring blocks were as high as 33. So, you were selling it on the notion that the block will be able to be rezoned to a point where you could build another high rise because at the time it was zoned as something else. Talk to me about that. Walk to me walk it through on how you're able to convince the buyers that you know it's the price is justified because you can convert, even though you're not the government, you're not DOB, but you can build a high rise here. How does that work? You
0: well know, I think it's part of a broker's job and particularly if you're representing the seller to figure out how to maximize the price. Sure. So you have to look at uh, every way that value could be interp- interpreted at that particular site, uh, what's happening in the neighborhood, what's happening on the block, what's changing in the, in the neighborhood. What are things that could create value for that parcel that doesn't exist today? Uh, we knew that uh, Jeff Levine at Douglaston had signed a long-term ground lease Uh, for the properties essentially surrounding this site. That block was zoned, it's one of two blocks only that were zoned to 2.0 FAR. Uh, We knew that Jeff was in the process of going through a rezoning for his site. It was very unclear at the time because it was early in that Euler process, unclear how it was going to go. You know, it's one of the challenging things about ulerps is that you really don't have an idea of how you're going to do until near the end of that process. So you've spent a lot of money, you've spent a lot of time, and you really don't know till near the end uh, how you're going to do. We uh, convinced buyers that this particular site had a very, very high probability of getting rezoned because of what was happening all around it because of the work that Jeff was doing on his, his site. And um, we ended up selling that site to Kevin Lalazarian, who's a great client of ours. Kevin agreed that he thought it was a high probability the site would get rezoned. Um, at the time, I think he paid something like $1,000 a, a or $1,100 a buildable foot for the as of right. Uh, FAR, which would have been a massive, massive price. But based on the rezoning that occurred, it ended up being a very reasonable price. Uh, But that was a calculated risk that Kevin took. So, you know, I think as a broker, you want to try to figure out ways to, to create value for your client by being a little creative, thinking outside the box, see how you can position a particular asset to to have more perceived value to a potential buyer.
1: Did the buyer end up closing on this property before there was clarity or confirmation on the air rights?
0: Yes, there was no, uh, no clarity on where it was gonna go and there was no contingency for the rezoning. Had the seller been willing to make a deal contingent upon that, the property would have been under contract for a very long time. Uh, the seller there wanted to monetize that asset, didn't wanna wait didn't want to have a contingent deal. So there was a strong deposit and a short closing and no contingencies of any kind.
1: The amount of cojones needed for a buyer to put down, first of all, it was you guys were asking 13 million, it closed at 30, correct? Or somewhere around there. Just the pure sheer willingness and confidence you have to have To close on something without having those guarantees, that probably requires a special type of personality and aggression. Yeah, well, I always (laughs) say the the
0: development business in New York uh, requires capital and a lot of guts, a lot of intestinal (laughs) fortitude, and um, you know, folks make uh, make big bets in this market, and um, hopefully those bets pay off in a in a good way.
1: Yeah, I mean it's an educated guess, obviously, but still a very much calculated risk. You've seen a lot of developers on your, in your life in your lifetime. What makes a developer like someone like Kevin? What makes them succeed and successful like Kevin and other developers that try and I'm not I don't want to say fail, but may not, but can't get to the level of some of these other top developers in the city. You know, what do you think is the difference between that those two groups?
0: You know, I I'll just. Um give you some generalities I I think that um, number one is uh, the way that you arrange your capital are you investing your own capital or other people's capital Um, and a lot of it truthfully is uh, is luck Uh, and and because so much of the development business is based on timing particularly if you're in the condo business Um, you know you're you're buying a property today And those units are probably not going to come online for three or four years. It's many cycles. Um, Who knows? Who knows what market conditions are going to be like? And, you know, interestingly, many of the developers that I talked to say they made their best deals at a time when everybody was fearful. Nobody wanted to do anything. And they took the plunge and bought a site. It ended up being perfect timing because by the time that that property came online, market conditions were perfect. Um, So I think it takes uh, it takes guts Capital, insight, creativity, sure. uh, good luck sure. relative to timing. You know, clearly, if you're if you're building a rental building, uh, timing is less important. But if you're in the condo business, which is the most risky of all the uh, the development uh, sectors, uh, you want to make sure that uh, you want to to be lucky relative to timing because right. that's a big part of what goes on.
1: Right. Okay. Understood. Related to me a little bit. Do you have a little bit of a backstory on the Corinthian deal and? How that came apart, but that is a, that's a separate deal. That's a different deal than your traditional deals, right? These are this is a package of sponsor units that one ownership had. Do you have a little bit of a story Right. Well,
0: what? I you know I'll say um, you know I I, uh, I really enjoy my relationship and friendship with Elliot Spitzer, sure. uh, great real estate mind. Uh, you and know his dad as well. I knew I knew his dad oh, wow. uh, Bernard yeah. uh, from back in the eighties and nineties. Uh, And I think at the time the Corinthian was built, that was on the old Eastern Airlines uh, terminal Mm -hmm. uh, location. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the biggest single apartment building in the city when it was built. That's right, Um, 500 units plus. uh, While many of those apartments had been uh, sold when the building was converted, uh, there were components of it that were still retained by the Spitzer family. Um, And we ended up over the years, we sold the parking garage, condominium we sold the medical space condominium Mm -hmm. and then there were the 144 apartments uh that uh, that the family still owned that uh, we were hired to sell um sold them to gaia who was a a great purchaser to work with we've done a number of deals um with dave and danny and and those guys are, are fantastic sure Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that turned out to be a a very good deal for them.
1: Yeah. Very good deal. Very bad deal for me, but a very good deal for you. (laughs) Sorry about that, Doc. No, all good. All good. That's the name of the game. Uh, but they, that, that building, I mean, would you live in that building? What do you think about it?
0: Yeah, I look, I think it's a, uh, it's a great building and, um, you know, I think at the time. It was designed, which I think was in the 80s. 80s, yeah, 1986, 87. That, you know, there, I remember there being a lot of um, kind of common space. I know I'm not, not using the right word, but common space within the apartment right, the fourth, itself. fourth floor has for, a lot for, of... Foyers were very big, yeah. and um, you know I think part of the strategy, at least initially that uh, we thought was a possibility was to uh, create more bedrooms within each unit because yep. they were very, very large rooms. And that was very, um, very uh, illustrative of the way units were being designed in the 80s. Uh, right before they started to really get small, uh, room sizes were very generous. There were big foyers and the, there were ways to, uh, to redesign them. So I think that's one of the elements that, um, that uh, made that an attractive Uh, opportunity for folks.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. It's Mm -hmm. an interesting building and uh, what I like about it is the interior corridor in the distance of the exterior is larger by an average about two or three feet than the competing condos in the neighborhood. So Obviously, yes, the living rooms are longer, but the bedrooms are longer, which allows for more space in the kitchen and bathroom. It gives a little bit more flexibility to buyers. Switching gears, I know you're a busy man, so we're going to have to let you go soon. But again, with regards to how residential agents operate, do you get referral deals from them? How does that work? Or do do residential brokers residential agents send you referral deals or your team on any commercial projects that they don't personally want to handle or can't handle
0: yeah all the time Mm -hmm. um you know and that's one of the things you know paul and i always focused on maintaining relationships with everybody in the industry residential brokers appraisers architects lawyers and so the residential brokerage community has actually been a good source of business for us Mm -hmm. you know a a couple of Referrals a year where, for instance, a residential broker will sell an apartment to somebody for $40 million or $50 million, and that person, obviously very wealthy, will say, oh, by the way, I own this building. I want to sell it, and it's not something that that agent has a particular expertise in or that residential company doesn't have a a strong commercial division. So those brokers will often call me and say, hey, Bob, I'd like to refer this to you. This is a good friend of mine, a good client. They want to sell this property, and we're happy to pay a 20% referral Mm -hmm. fee provided that broker's licensed in New York, which they always are. So we're happy to pay those referral fees to
1: brokers. So you heard this here. I mean, if you're in New York City and you have, let's just say, a client that owns a I don't know, it's a commercially zoned textile warehouse, an old textile warehouse. Something that we don't really deal with at Compass I mean I don't know where to start with something like that. Then uh, Bob is obviously a great contact to have and uh, there's a referral fee involved too, so that's you know very similar to what a residential agent would send to like, just say a buyer that's not in their state. So how does the commission structure work in commercial in the commercial world as you and the seller as Residential agents, we charge 6% of the gross sales price. What is the structure in the commercial world? Or is there an industry standard? And my second part of my question is, are there discount, and I'm sure there are, are there discount commercial agents that compete with you on the commission as there are in the residential field?
0: Yeah, well, everything is negotiable. (laughs) There's nothing that is is standard, quote unquote. Sure. Uh, I don't know what other folks charge. And, uh... Uh, I don't think I'm supposed to know what other folks charge, so uh, we just (laughs) negotiate uh, commissions. Uh, Every commission is negotiated
1: with the client. There's
0: nothing that's standard. It's case by case is what you're saying. Yes.
1: How do you differentiate yourself? Say I'm the seller and say, hey, talk, I will do it for 6%. You you come to me and say, I'm the seller. You come to me and say, um, my, my fee is 6%. But then David Smith over here at XYZ Commercial will come to me and say, I'll do it for 2%. What is your argument in hiring you versus the discount agent at two percent?
0: Right. Well, talk, that all comes down to being able to articulate your value proposition. Mm-hmm. And I say in the commercial world, it's the most important thing is to specialize in an area, to have an expertise that you can easily differentiate yourself from everyone else, and to be able to that to be able to differentiate yourself in that way, Creates a competitive advantage. So, in articulating your uh, your value proposition, I'll give you an example, and I call this the spaghetti and meatball story. All right. So, I'm uh, I'm pitching an owner of a building down in Little Italy on Mulberry Street. Um, Sounds yummy. It was a uh, he he owned and operated the Italian restaurant on the ground floor, had 40 apartments above, wanted to sell the building. Um, so his name was Giovanni. Is he a chef yeah. He wasn't the chef, but he owned He's the, owned the he restaurant. He did everything, yeah. So I go down to, uh, to look at the building, look at it, set up a presentation. He says, Bobby, come down and have lunch with me and we'll talk about it. And so sitting there, I go through my presentation. I ask him, what should I have for lunch? He says, have my spaghetti and meatballs. It's the best in the city. I said, okay, I ordered the spaghetti and meatballs. We're talking about the, our marketing program, our opinion of value. He asked what our fee was. Uh, I said 4%. And he's like, 4%. Every other broker tell me they do it for 2%. As though so we're, oh. we're continuing to eat. And I'm saying, yeah, you know, Giovanni, this spaghetti and meatballs is fantastic. This is really great. I'm loving it. And he, How much you charge for this? He's like, $28. I said, $28. Oh, $28. 28 is a lot. I said, I can get spaghetti and meatballs across the street for 12 bucks. He <laughs> says, yeah, but Bob, you don't understand. You know, I fly in semolina flour from Italy. I make my own pasta, homemade pasta every day. This sauce you're eating, that's homemade sauce. I get the tomatoes. I do this and my meatballs. Every place on the block is going to give you beef meatballs. My, my meatballs have pork, veal, beef. Wow. These are, this is the best spaghetti and meatballs you can get on Mulberry Street. <laughs> and you know what? He was articulating his value proposition. He made a great case for why he could charge more. And in the same way, I tried to say, well, look, let's talk about engagement with the brokerage community. Here's my list of 5,000 brokers that work on the sale of buildings in New York. Did the other brokers have this list? Here's my list of comparable sales. And I spoke to the buyer and seller of every one of these. And so I know what the the prices were, what the cap rates were. you know, I know all the buyers. Here's a list of buyers. Here's a list of everybody that's bought a building like yours in the city in the last ten years. Did the other Can't broker compete. have that list? Wow! And so, in the same it's way, the semolina
1: flour. This is just showing them it, the flour. You're showing them the veal and the pork and the beef. It's the spaghetti and
0: meatball story. And I, uh-huh. you know, I, 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 uh, I have a buddy, uh, Adam Dunn, who who does a podcast also, and he's heard the spaghetti and meatball stories years ago, but he had me retell that on his podcast, and I'm glad I could share it with your viewers because I think that 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 is really so illustrative of how to articulate a value proposition and why all brokers are not the same, just like all spaghetti and meatballs is not the same. You should get paid for the value you're bringing to the table.
1: Did you get the 4%?
0: No, I got 3%. There you go. I got
1: the deal. I got 3%,
0: so I still got 50% more than the other brokers. I didn't get my 4 but I was happy with the results. Yes,
1: you did. Yes, you did. Uh, Just to kind of wrap up here, going back now, we're going to tell you the the number of years you've been in the business, it's 39 years. Uh, If you could go back to year one right now and tell that young Bob Knackle one or two things that would have expedited their career or helped their career, what would you have told him?
0: I I definitely would have brought on more help sooner, Uh, meaning that... um, you know we waited until it was easy to afford bringing on an assistant bringing on a transactional associate bringing on a director of hr bringing on a coo bringing on a cfo and the the biggest incremental difference that we had in our productivity was when we we brought on our first transactional associate Ah. if you look at the the pipeline of a transaction where you find out the building's for sale, you do the presentation, you get hired, then you do all the things that need to be done to get that building sold. You take a picture of it, you put together a setup, a marketing package, send the ads out, do the blast, go show the building, uh, negotiate with people, get the bids, and then finally wrap up the negotiations and get the contract signed. A lot of the things in the middle of that pipeline don't have to be done by a senior broker. Um, Senior broker doesn't have to be the one showing the building, putting the setup together, taking pictures, yep. going to the building's department, doing research, um, doing a 10-year cash flow analysis. So when we hired our first, and, and back in those days, stuffing mail was a big part of the, uh, of your, the business. Your, your,
1: your world-famous newsletters.
0: That's right, That's right. We, we were sending out a lot of those. But uh, when we hired our first transactional associate, it freed up time to allow us to spend most of our time on the things that we did best. And I think there are so many things you can do as a, as a broker, but I think you should try to spend as much time doing the thing that you think adds the most value to your team um, and let other people do other things. Be be willing to delegate to other people. Have people there that you can delegate to and then actually delegate responsibility to them.
1: You're, he's the original Gary V. You were the original Gary Vaynerchuk. Do you know who he is? He's a... a Another I've tech, name, but tech I... influencer, but he, he's saying the same thing: fire yourself from the jobs that you don't need to do, so that you can focus on the things that you want to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a very, that's a very good, uh, very good advice, especially for the younger agents out here, and that applies very much so to real, residential real estate as well. Uh, on a final note, do you have any questions for us as a residential agent?
0: No, I just I would always curious as to how the market is doing and what's happening. It, it seems like when I ask residential agents how the market is. Um, you folks talk about well, the under X million is doing this way, and the bigger mark, bigger units are doing this, and this neighborhood or that neighborhood. Wait, well, give me a, you What's your two-minute elevator pitch on how the the residential market is? As
1: our, as our president would say, Leonard Steinberg, I'm sure you know him well. The New York City market is a tale of 500 stories. So it's 500 mar- micro markets. The 250 West Street. Uh, does significantly well than 55 vestry even though they're in the same neighborhood but why is it different right it's a different developer different price point different price mixes even though it's in the same zip code same thing with new york city co-ops versus new york city condos well how's the market doing well depends on what you're asking because the co-op market in new york city right now is definitely struggling as most as compared to the condo counterparts, primarily because interest rates have risen, which means debt-to-income ratios for buyers have risen, which means that in order for that same buyer to qualify at a 3% uh, last year, can no longer qualify for the board for 6% this year. So the prices obviously have to come down, but the co-op boards, as you may have known or heard, tend to be very uh, slow in adjusting to market expectations. So when they see a board package come in at lower than the previous year's line. Well, they probably want to reject that sales deal. So it's a tale of micro markets between condos and co-ops, different neighborhoods, different developers. Some buildings have outperformed other buildings in the same block, neighboring buildings for a variety of reasons. So, uh, you know, that's where it is. It's not something that you can just say, well, you know, we're up 10% last year, year over year. We're up 20% year over year on the macro level though, since 2017, to where we are today, the prices really have not gone up on the aggregate. So it's it's only a two or 3% increase, uh, which is kind of interesting because obviously it's a cyclical market and where we are today uh, with interest rates, the, the sellers that really don't need to sell uh, may not be making much of a capital gain. I think that's why they don't need to sell. And also uh, why would they want to flip into a, uh, a 3% mortgage that they have into a 6.5% mortgage that they, you know, that they might get today. So yeah, that is, a scope in the residential market fantastic uh, th- Bob thank you so much again listeners please follow him at Bob Knackle on Instagram Bob Knackle on Twitter everything will be pl- plugged into the show notes I'll also link his, his company bio into the show notes as well so feel free to reach out to him directly with any questions or perhaps any commercial opportunities that uh, Bob can help you with thank you so much for your time Bob
0: Talk, great, you great to be here and I wish you the best of luck and thanks for having me
1: thank you so much